Hey there folks, welcome back to Pretend Worlds Real People. As always, I'm Tyler, and before we start this week's episode, I wanted to give a shout out to my friends, my peers, former guests of the show who are currently picketing during the WGA writer's strike. Now, I'm not going to give you the 40-minute review of what this strike is, but it ranges all, all over the place, anywhere from the limited use of AI to the, the biggest one, compensation and how little writers have been paid and they deserve more. So if you're looking for ways to support the writers during the strike, there is a carpool sign-up sheet for New York and LA you can find on the WGA site, I believe. Uh, also, if you're outside of there, like many of us are, just continue to support, spread the word through social media, and uh, we can only hope that this strike ends with a good note and that these writers are properly compensated. Now, that is a great segue into this week's episode in which I had the great fortune of chatting with a playwright, an actor, a musician, and a teacher by the name of Jack Canfora. Now, Jack has a very colorful background in the performing arts world, especially when it comes to his education and his experience, and we talk about everything from his upbringing to his education, especially in the UK, to becoming a playwright and working in New York, especially working during COVID and how they had to pivot into a digital medium and still, you know, expose the beauty of theatrical performance through computer screens. It, it was just a really, really nice chat. I, I love talking with him. Hope I can have him back on the show here in the next uh, year or so. It would just be fantastic because he has a lot of things coming down the pike. So uh, without further ado, let's sit down, grab a cup of tea, and let's chat with Jack Ganfora. My name is Jack Canfora, and I am a playwright and sometimes actor and uh, artistic director of the online theater company, New Normal Rep. And I saw that it, it looked like acting came first for you. Was that, is that true or? It is true. Yeah. I sort of uh, fell into a bad crowd as an actor and turned, ended up writing plays. Uh, I uh, started out um, in theater, you know, wanting to be an actor and, and do Shakespearean acting in particular. And then um, as I got older, that became um less tenable because I, you know, I had a family and I was going to get a day job and um, I sort of segued into playwriting. Uh, I was in a sketch comedy troupe, so I wrote a lot of sketch material and, um, and then I found eventually that I was able to, my best way of staying connected uh, to the forming arts world was, was by writing because I could do that um, and, and still have a full-time job. And as it <laughs> turned out, I think that was a better path for me anyway. Yeah, what what was the full time job? I'm sure there were a few. But I was a was teacher the... for many years, uh, which oh, I love. Wow. It was great. I was an English teacher, and it was great um, training for me actually as a writer because I'm teaching all of these, you know, great plays, and it's really um, great training because like I ended up having to study it, you know, uh, study them in depth and sort of get uh, under its uh, their skins, so to speak, and. Uh, it's a real great training. You know, there's the cliche, if you want to learn something, teach it. And um, that certainly was was true for me. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I'm always interested to ask this question to every single guest. But if you can recall that moment where you found a connection or an attachment to the performing arts, do you remember when that happened for you? Oh, I mean, I think 
like a lot of people, I mean, it's almost a cliched answer, but I, when I was, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was young, when I was a little kid, I moved around a lot with my parents. My father was in a job and he kept on, you know, getting promoted, which was very nice, but uh, with his business, but I kept on moving from place to place. And so I was always sort of the odd kid out. Uh, I was always the new kid. And, um, and I was, you know, pretty marginally weird to begin with. And so you put those two things together. Uh, and so I was often on the outside looking in. And when I was in, I guess it was really high school, early high school, maybe before then, where, you know, I auditioned for plays and, and got got in and got reasonably good roles. It was the first place I felt, um, you know, connected to people. It was the first way I, you know, I I could feel part of any sort of community in any real sense. And so that's pretty uh, intoxicating, to say the least. And so um, that, I mean, that that's what it was for me. It was only later when I realized that, I perhaps had some facility for it. And it was also a discipline and a craft that I really admired and wanted to um, to pursue. That probably was around college uh, by the time I realized. Because it was always something that I just assumed would fall away as mm -hmm. I moved on in my life. And then I realized that it was a lot more important to me than almost anything else I was doing. And so I, um, it, it, it went from being just a great um, self-validating, reaffirming community and fun to those things, but also um, something that I really needed to work at. And, uh, you know, there's there's nothing, there are few better feelings in the world than really pouring real effort into something that you that you really love. So there you go. What about the, um, the performance aspect of theater uh, made you feel comfortable? I mean, a lot of people have common mm -hmm. stage fright, right? So did you yeah. feel just an innate comfort jumping onto the stage? Yeah, I don't think I suffered much stage fright. I, um, I mean, I, I'm sure I had, I had butterflies, certainly, you know, certainly before opening night or whatever. But um, it was always something that I welcomed. It, it, it was even the even the butterflies were fun, um, <clears throat> which sounds like the world's worst hippie poem. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, even that was uh, sort of thrilling and addictive in a weird sort of way, and um, it gave me confidence. And not to you know, get too um, maudlin and psychological about it. I mean, I also got to, it enabled me to kind of have attention on me in a positive way without the burden of it really having to be me. So when I was on the stage, I didn't have to be me, uh, which was an enormous relief uh, in all sorts of ways. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and it was incredibly validating. People, you know, um, you know, it was, to be that age, and to be sort of an outsider and to have people um, uh, be positive to you or towards you in any way is uh, is gold. Yeah. And, and you know what? If you don't mind me asking, I think there's a there's a commonality with uh, performers, creatives and that idea of, of feeling like you're an outsider or an outlier within your, your peer group. What mm. if you wouldn't mind uh, going into detail? What made you feel like an outsider? What made you feel weird? Well, I think a lot of it, I think a lot of it was the constantly being the new kid around. Um, I, um, I mean, there were a few factors. I, uh, that was the main one. The other one was that I was a a really voracious reader, which um, as as a little kid, and which didn't by any stretch mean that I was smarter than the other kids at all, but it meant that I talked differently than the other kids. <laughs> <clears throat> and so um, I was. Um, sometimes a little baffling, I think, to my peer group um, in ways that 
I couldn't understand because to me it was just the way I would, you know, talk. I mean, it's not that I was speaking an iambic pentameter, but I mean, <laughs> you know, um, if you use uh, a three-syllable word, you know, in fourth grade, you're labeled as as bizarre, uh, and and that sort of you know preceded me. So it's not that I believe me, it's not that I was smarter than the other kids. It was just that my um, that I read a lot. I was an only child until I was nine. I moved constantly, so I was my only escape was books, and so I was constantly filling my head with, uh, you know, these stories and this, and this language. And so I think it made it a little harder for me to um, acclimatize myself to new environments. I, I definitely believe it as a, a book, uh, just a bookworm myself, especially in elementary school, reading books that were years ahead. Yeah. There were moments where you had to, you know, recede back a little bit when you're talking to your friends and say, oh, no, I meant I meant this. Um, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I didn't mean to say forsooth there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I I wasn't necessarily good at maybe you were good at recalibrating. I wasn't necessarily I was a bit, I guess, stubborn and or obtuse and didn't really recalibrate the way I should have. Um, and so I think some of it was that, to be sure. Um but yeah, I, I would lay a lot of it on the fact that I, you know, wasn't was always the new kid in town, and uh, plus also I had like I like apparently I don't even remember this, but I had apparently like um, what these call like pigeon toes, like pigeon feet, uh, which is like your where your feet kind of go in a little bit, yeah. although not, not really. But what they <laughs> had in the seventies uh, are these are special shoes, these orthotic shoes, which it's like they got grant money to design the ugliest worst looking shoes possible and so all these other kids you know wearing sneakers and stuff like that and i'm wearing these like things from a victorian novel and so um that didn't really help me much either uh didn't up my cool factor <laughs> well all of that experience as a child sort of i feel like that that shaped you to the artist you are now you know you have a yeah. an empathy that i'm sure you wouldn't have had if you and a better taste in shoes yeah no i yeah. think that's true i mean i've also from i mean it runs in my family a lot of um i i from a very early age suffered from real depression i mean looking back on it now i think oh my gosh i was really really clinically depressed even like i can remember feeling things at three that i look at now as an adult and say oh that's real severe clinical depression and so um that and that are also absolutely is informed who I am as a person and uh, who I am as, as a writer, to be sure. Yeah. Is there a uh, a connection you have to the characters you write then, you know, when it comes to addressing mental health and depression? Well, sometimes so, several of my characters um, tend to have that as as an issue that they wrestle with. Uh, not all of them by any stretch, but a lot of them. And, hmm. and in fact, you know, like theater company's radio play now, which is out on uh, uh, podcast platforms. The central character is someone who, who struggles with depression. That's not the through line. I mean, that's not the plot, but it, it's it's part of her uh, makeup and backstory. And so, yeah, certainly there's a tendency for me to, to uh, gravitate towards those characters a bit because, you know, the cliche is right, which you know, but um so I think, you know, but I think talking earlier, what you were saying about like, you know, the bad things helping inform the good, I, I wouldn't wish depression on anyone. Having said that, uh, I do think that whatever abilities I have, whatever uh, virtues as a human being I may have, are certainly um, augmented, if not actually created by my depression. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's, I don't think I'd be nearly as aware of other people. I don't think I would be as... Um, 
empathetic and, and not and believe me not that i'm a font of empathy but i mean to the whatever degree i i i can find myself empathizing and recognize empathy as a real virtue um that certainly it's been informed by my depression and um and it, it's an incredibly humbling thing too right because i've made you know i've done things in my life or failed to do things in my life that you know are sources of you know you know re regret and boy this has gotten often taking a very dark turn but i mean it's <laughs> but what they've done is they've allowed it's very humbling it allows you to realize that you're you're incredibly vulnerable as a person and everyone's incredibly vulnerable as a person and so uh, be you know kinder to other people than maybe you'd like to be and um be kinder you know to yourself which is something i still sort of wrestle with but um uh yeah so i i think that depression is you know again i wouldn't wish on anyone but i i do think it can be very um it's a strict un, uh, unfair and cruel teacher but it does teach you things absolutely uh, as somebody who's fought with that in my entire life and i still do you know even with yeah. therapy and whatever medication you may take uh yeah it, it's the greatest teacher I've ever had. And I would never recommend it to, to someone else. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it yeah. is, uh, it does feel very cathartic when you can utilize, you know, whatever you're feeling during those episodes and place yeah. it within the art or put it onto a page and, and, you know, dive yeah. into writing. Yeah. I mean, for me, it, it's very much a great, um, well, well, at this point, it's just, I've done it for so long that it's been it's become so habituated uh, in my behavior and so hardwired into my sense of who I am that um, I, I, I literally don't know what I would do if I, if I didn't write and it's not uh, so in a sense, it's just a way of, and it's a great way to escape into things too, right? Mm -hmm. It's a great way because it's a different world. You have complete control of that world. Um, and, uh, but it's also allows you, it's like a, um, a lab in which you can look through the emotions you're feeling. When I write, I usually write to figure out what I feel. Like I don't know what I feel about something as I'm, you know, my, my impetus for me for a, a writing a play or, 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 or TV show or whatever is almost never, I would like to talk about this. It was, it's always, I wonder what it would feel like to be this. And I don't know how I feel about that. So let me try and write and discover it. Wow. You know what? I do want to, on that note, I do want to ask you um, what the process was like when you wrote your first play that ended up being produced. What was that experience yeah. like for you from writing it to, you know, the first day of tech rehearsals? Yeah, it was. Well, I was very lucky in that the first full length play I wrote uh, was actually produced um, by the New Jersey Repertory uh, Company, which is a small but but very nice, very good, very well-respected uh theater company and i it was a very strange experience now i'd been writing sketches for a couple of years at that point and it was a great um teacher writing sketch comedy because what you'd write it and then like within a week sometimes within a day or two you'd put it up on its feet in front of an audience and it would either work or really wouldn't work and then that's talk about teaching that's the best teacher of all that's better i haven't taken any like formal writing classes but I feel like that that was as good a, a learning, a good a, a good a, a, a system to learn as any. Um, and so when I started to write. It was very much a self-conscious thing to see if, in fact, I could write a play. It was very much, um, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to act anymore because now I've got a day job and I've got a mouth to feed. Um, and so 
writing maybe is a way to stay connected in some way. And so I actually wrote a couple small one act plays just to see if I could maybe do it. And I thought, uh, okay, maybe. And then I, so I said, okay, let me see if I can write this, this play just to see if I can, I can write it. And, um, and yeah, I don't think it's a great play looking back on it, but it was, um, you know, I workshopped it and, uh, spent a lot of time with it and, uh, it eventually got, uh, produced, uh, which, Again, very lucky in, in a lot of ways to do that. But it was an amazingly steep learning curve. It was an amazingly steep lear learning curve. Um, and that, uh, but it was wonderful. And, and, and it, it, at the time, I hadn't really fully hunted on the idea of acting. And so, in fact, uh, I, wrote a, I, I wrote the play with a role for me in mind. And so I actually acted in it too, which I have come to find is actually, the, for me, it's much harder to act in a play of mine than it is to act in someone else's play. Um, because, um, you know, the, the most basic requirement as an actor you need and it, it, that's demanded of you is that you be attentive in fully listening to your other actors. And while I would do that, part of my brain would also be saying, well, I don't think that line really is landing the way I'd like it to. I, I think it needs a trim. And so when you're, the minute you do that, you're being really sort of unfair to your fellow actors and to the audience. Um, and I've gotten a bit better at that, but, um, so it was in a weird sort of way. It was like to see if I could do it and also maybe to give me um, a vehicle to act in because I knew that I didn't have time to go audition. And so I thought, uh, well, maybe this will be the way I do it. Um, but in subsequent plays, um, you know, I started realizing that I think I'm better served just by trying to write. And uh, and that was actually very freeing for me and so that that sort of that's what happened to it i mean it's it's an amazing thing what you learn and, and i find myself having to learn them oh these things over and over again the mistakes i make writing which are inevitably brought to light when it's being read or being performed um are i think they're common mistakes for a lot of writers but for me they repeat themselves over and over again i mean in my case i become i overwrite horribly um and you forget how much heavy lifting a good actor can do for you uh, without, you know, all your all your words getting in the way. Um, and inevitably, even the stuff I write now, I, like I think I've gotten rid of everything that's excessive. And then I'll hear it and I'm like, I have not gotten rid of everything that's excessive. Um, but that's, you know, part of the part of the fun of it and part of the craft of it. And uh, so I really love it. And do you have a uh, a brain trust, so to speak? It could be family, friends, somebody you can go to. To I'm so lucky. I am so lucky in that <laughs> regard. One thing I will say for myself is that if I've worked with people, someone over the years, and I've really um, admired their talent, but also liked them as people, as I, that I've made a very conscious effort to sort of cultivate relationships and friendships with them. Not in a cynical way, it's because I really enjoy them, but also, um, you know, there are several actors with whom. Um, I have acted, you know, or, or they've been, they've been in plays of mine for like over 10 or 12 years and we're still in contact. I mean, this, this online theater company that I'm a part of, a lot of those actors are absolutely part of that. And, um, it's gotten to the point where I will occasionally write plays and I'll think, oh, I think, you know, I think my friend Eleanor Handley would be good in this role or Carol Todd would be good in this role or, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, Michael Satow. And these are friends of mine who are also brilliant actors and, uh, they, and so I will go to them and say, hey, I've written this thing. What do you think? And um, they've they're very smart and they're very um, and they're, they're all, you know, they're good friends, but they're not 
you know, they're not going to be uh, flattering to me uh, just because I'm their friend. So I, I do have a group of people. So it's a small group, but it's a handful of people whom I trust implicitly their judgment um, theatrically. And um, and they've been enormous and enormous help to me and continue to be. Well, that's wonderful, especially having a small group where you yeah. can absolutely trust, hey, demolish this if you have to red mark right. the hell out of it. I need I right. need commentary. Uh, yes. Is there any sort of uh, I, I don't know, do you get any feeling where you talk to them about your projects or about scripts they're working on where you mm-hmm. feel that drive to get back on stage and, and act again or? Well, it's funny you mention that because in the past. Um, because recently I've been um, I've done a little bit of that recently, like in this play, uh, which I will uh, you know relentlessly plug at the end of this podcast and which i might as well start now um it's called step nine and it's a play i wrote and it's um it's a radio play essentially but it's it's released it, it's on a in podcast plat, uh, platforms any podcast platform you'd go to you could find it uh, i'm actually in that play as and, and um i was not intending to be but um a couple of my friends um said to me, you know, I think you should, you should do this. Uh, I think you should, you could do it. And so I did. And they were very kind and encouraging to me. Um, and I was in a room with really good actors and, um, when we recorded it. And so that sort of levels up your game, uh, to be sure, but also it was a very friendly environment because they, I didn't walk in saying, I think I should play this role. It was suggested to me, which is really the only way I, I ever would have done it. And so I'm I'm an actor in that play, and um, you know I may act in things here and there, but I don't I don't have an acting career per se. There are some things occasionally I I may jump into now. Whereas even five years ago, that wasn't really true for me for the most part. Uh, so I may be finding more of that now as I get older. But um, it generally takes uh, someone I trust to say, no, you 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 can do it. You should you should try it because I don't think of myself at this point really as an actor anymore. Yeah, you know what, and it's it's fun territory with you being primarily a writer now with your education mm-hmm. background, you know, going to Lambda and acquiring all of that knowledge. Were there any classes in which you were placed into the perspective of the writer when you were attending that school or was really it all bad. dramatic it, performance? It, it was all dramatic stuff, but it, it, that's okay. a really good question. But, you know, when you think about it, so many uh, uh, playwrights started out as actors. Um, and I think just, um, being inhabiting those plays, pretentious word inhabiting, being in those plays, <laughs> uh, so insufferable. Uh, being in those plays, um, was you know, the, all of them were very helpful. And what happens is through osmosis, you sort of get a sense of what how a play should be structured. You know, um, not that all plays need to be structured similarly, but uh, a good sense of what makes a good blueprint for a play. Um, because you're acting in inevitably um, 90% really good plays. Uh, so, and again, also when I was teaching, you know, I was teaching, I wasn't teaching plays that like didn't do well. <laughs> you know, I'm teaching, <laughs> you know, Death of a Salesman or Raisin in the Sun or, uh, you know, a Street Crying Desire. These are good plays. And um, so I, I learned a lot doing that. I think being an actor is actually one of the best ways you can um best ways you can learn to write plays. Um, and, you know, they'll all debate about, you know, whether or not Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare or not. And there's a lot of debate both sides. You can't convince me 
you can't convince me Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare. Um, and there may, and there's lots of academic arguments, but to me, the one key to me, uh, irrefutable piece of evidence is in uh, the Scottish play. Well, we're not on the stage, so I can say it. Macbeth. Um, there is a moment in which, and spoiler alert, if you haven't read Macbeth, there's some plot twists, <laughs> you know, some spoilers ahead. Um, uh, the scene, uh, Macbeth kills Duncan and he comes downstairs and he's in sort of a fugue state and he's got blood all over his hands and his wife, you know, emasculates him and says, I'll go do it. And he's very upset and uh, there's knocking on the door and he's covered in blood and um, and he says, and then he has to go answer the door. Uh, and then the next scene, there's the porter who has this monologue, um, which was very funny in the day and many people don't understand now it's basically a lot of sex jokes and um uh, being drunk etc etc and then he has a brief little interlude with with uh with Macduff um and then Macbeth comes on and he's fine that is the exact length of time it takes to wash the blood off of your hands change your costume and walk on and that to me is it's not scientific but I'm telling you as an actor who in his youth played that role I would marvel at this had to have been a theater guy. This guy knew I've got blood on my caked on my hands. I need time to get it washed off and I got to switch and then I got to walk on. And it's inevitably the exact right timing. So Shakespeare was a guy who knew his theater and, 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 and a very real workmanlike sense of things like, you know, very pragmatic, not highfalutin, not, you know, um, you know, what themes am I going to explore though? No doubt he may, he may or may not have done that, but it was, that to me is like a technician, like a workman at work. Uh, who, who knew his craft. And so in that sense, I think being involved in the theater um, is great, is the greatest possible training for being a writer. On the, to speak on that as well, I, as somebody who grew up mainly on <laughs> film and, yeah. you know, well, never really too, by the way. theater. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I um, honestly, I don't, I don't think it was until I saw Fences here in Denver in college. Mm. And it's my favorite play to oh, this day i absolutely love it yeah. uh but I, I do want to bring up the the movement to bring theater back to you know the mass populace and making it less of the you know pinkies up drinking you know the best <laughs> yeah. wine sort of experience and more for yeah. everybody which you know denver's definitely doing in spades it's been wonderful but sure i want to get your perspective on bringing theater to the masses in new york city i mean off broadway off 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 broadway i mean what has yeah. that been like in the last few years well, it's been very well in the past few years. Um, it's been, of course, incredibly hard. It's always it's always hard. Right? Theater's always on the verge of dying. I mean, you can just picture someone coming up to Sophocles and saying, "Man, Sophie, wasn't it better twenty years ago? Wasn't it a lot easier? Uh, wasn't it better uh, before these kids are ruining it now?" So, I think there's always been an element of that. But certainly, the pandemic was a um, tidal wave that I mean that crushed many elements of our, of our culture, but theater in particular. Um, I think that. The unfortunate trend, and I'm hardly breaking new ground here, but I think the unfortunate trend for theater uh, in America anyway is that it's so inaccessible now. And I grew up on Long Island. I grew up about an hour's train ride away from the, the arguably the center of uh, Western theater in the world. And I didn't, my parents didn't, never went to plays. I didn't go to plays. Um, I grew up on TV and films and music. And, you know, Elvis Costello and John Lennon and Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen, these guys in, in, uh, they, they inform my sense of language and writing at least as much as Arthur Miller does. Um, but 
Um, you know, it's, it's just never been on our radar culturally because of two main reasons. Obviously, one is expense. It's very expensive and more expensive by the minute to go to go see a play. Even off-Broadway now is harder than it was. I had a couple of plays off-Broadway in the early teens, and the landscape is very much different now than it was even then because now you basically need a so-called name or a star to get something done off broadway and with broadway that's that's a that's a non-starter you need stars and you need a major budget um to do it um so the cost is prohibitive right it, it you most people can't afford to go see a broadway show they can't and it's mostly uh, on Broadway, it's mostly you know catered towards the tourist industry, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And it's sort of always been that way. I mean, you, literally, Eugene O'Neill used to complain about it. Um, he called it like the show shop. He's very dis disparaging about it. Um, but back when you know the so-called heyday of a lot of American theater, when Williams and Miller and Inge and uh, Lorraine Hansberry were writing. You know, it, it was something that a lot of reasonably educated people in the city would go see every day, school teachers, clerks, you know, and now it's like a, it's a super expensive thing. And um, and so that's very prohibitive. And the other prohibit, uh, thing that prohibits it, I think, is geography. I mean, you're lucky in that Denver does have some, a really nice, thriving theater community, but it's that's a rarity. Um Ge geography is really um, a big impediment to that. And one of the things that we're excited about with, with the online theater company, New Normal Rep, it was formed during the pandemic, initially as a way for all of us just to kind of stay in touch with each other. Uh, I talked about those friends of mine uh, who, who uh, I admire and who are great. And we realized at a certain point that it's actually a really good, um, it's a good theater company we got going. And we uh, really put some effort into it. And we we believe that it's, a really nice way of exposing people to theatrical works. It's not theater, obviously, right? There are th things about the theater that are unique and wonderful in the theater that require you to all be in one room. Uh, that's part of its magic. But it's uh, we're we think we found an aesthetic in which you can sort of um, present a theatrical work uh, as opposed to say a TV script or a screenplay. Uh, a stage play, which is different. It, it, it's more, uh, privi it privileges language more, language more, for example. Um, and what we're very excited about is that all of our plays are either free or um, or very little cost. And if you have internet connection anywhere in the world, you can watch it. And the idea of, and we're not alone in this, but we're, there are a few of us who I think are really, you know, uh, feeding uh, you know, or, or creating a hunger and an appetite for something that most people don't even know that they're missing out on. Absolutely. And I've heard, uh, I mean, I have grandparents who've never really been to a theater. You know, they've been to their yeah. church plays and that sort of thing for the holidays and that's about it. Uh, but I walked in a couple of months ago and they were watching a, a stage play on TV through, you know, their uh, their Roku or whatever plugin they had. Uh, mm -hmm. And I said, oh, I, I love it. This is great. We should we should try to go do this. Like, well, yeah, but I mean, and, and embrace it now, you know, like get get yeah. used to, to the format. So when you go, you know, to check out the theater and and see that craft, you have even, even more of a respect for it. Uh, and I do want to ask you when it comes to recording stage plays and putting them online, doing live streams, things like that, what sort of uh, you know, conflicts or um, troubles or challenges did you experience while doing that, especially during the pandemic? Uh, well, great question. Our, our first season had four plays uh, by four different playwrights. I was I was one of them because, you know, 
uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm not going to let him, you know, I'm a playwright. So I'm not going to let that chance go by. And, and <laughs> it was happens to be the first play we did was one of mine. Um, but uh, it was directed by Marsha Mason, who uh, is a tremendous Academy Award nominated actress and a brilliant director. And she said to me, I'm a little nervous about this because I've never really done this. And and we both said, well, we, no one has really. And what we had to do is we had to figure out how to make it feel like everyone was in the same room. Because when we recorded these plays, this was in 2020. So there, it was uh, full uh, lockdown. And... Um, you know, what we decided on was an aesthetic that I think works in this medium um, because it is a different medium um, than, say, television or film. You're watching it on a small screen, a uh, very small screen. So what we decided to do is we would incorporate, um, you know, through the use of green screen, uh, the sense that everyone was in the same room. But they weren't talking to each other. They although the characters were talking to each other, obviously, um, it was being presented where every actor was facing you, like uh, like you and I are facing each other now. And what we found is that people would say that it, it, it felt to them like suddenly they were like in the middle of the scene. It was very interesting. Um, and it allowed for a sort of intimacy that I don't think we've seen in in anything really. I mean, film and is, is, is obviously a brilliant medium, as it and television is brilliant and different, and that's different from stage. They're all different uh, flavors of dramatic presentation, but they all have their their distinct ecosystems. Um, and I think that online plays can be and in, in, in are often. I think when we've seen them, we've seen them done sort of clumsily because everyone's just trying to figure out how to do it. And or they're watching a like grandparents were a, a, a videotaped stage production of something, which used to be awful and unwatchable. But people have gotten pretty good at it now. Uh, and like for the National Theater does a great job of it and a lot of other places do, too. And so that's really great, too. And I just as I think those are wonderful experiences, but they're not quite theater, but they're very close. Um, I think doing something specifically for an online environment um, it requires, you know, a certain aesthetic. Now, um, there are only a couple of issues. I mean, like, for example, example, like the scene where characters kiss um, or something like that or physicalize. You have to you have to write your way around those things. But those aren't impossible by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and for me, for the for the um, audio play, the radio play we did, um, we what was interesting was that uh Again, it was a play of mine, and I don't want people to think that this theater company just does plays of mine. In fact, most of the works aren't by me. Um, thank goodness. But um, we found that, for my writing in particular, it lends itself to a radio sort of situation because of the fact that uh, it's very based on language. Um, so there are some works that may not translate well that are that are primarily visual in their in their uh, impact. Uh, mine, as I think you could have gleaned by now by listening to me, tend to rely a lot on words. And so, and and also it's scenes in which um, there's a lot of intimacy, a lot of, you know, two, two character, three character scenes. Then there are a few that aren't, but um, those scenes work very well in these environments because there's a, there's a quiet and an intimacy to them. Yeah. It, you know, building on that, I, I'm really intrigued. When you were, you know, modifying and revising and restructuring plays for you know that specific medium and then things start opening up you start going back onto the stage and you know, performing that way you're writing for for that medium itself 
what changed after you were doing those recordings and after producing plays from the internet and now bringing them back onto the stage? What changed for you going back uh, to in person? That's a really good question. I, you know, the, the short answer is nothing, and and that's not necessarily good news for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, it's it's been hard. I mean, I haven't had an onstage production yet since post pandemic, okay. um, but that doesn't mean I I really don't I desperately don't want there to be. I mean, um, you know, no, none of us in our company think that well, this is what we're going to do now instead of theater. You know, it's or or television. It's going to hopefully be in addition to. Um, I think that the um, I think that a lot of the same challenges that are there uh were there before and even or more so now um for example if i mentioned some of the plays like death of a salesman or, or stricter name desire earlier those were written in the late 40s and the casts are massive um and these are straight these aren't musicals these are straight plays and uh they have casts of and i'm making this number up it's like 15 parts 18 parts um, you just can't do that today. And that's and that that's always been the case. There's been a paring down and a paring down and a paring down. I had a play of mine um called Jericho, which um, you know, fortunately did very well and was produced a lot. Uh, but I had many theater companies come to me and say, We really love to do this play, but can you can you get rid of a couple of characters? Can you trim it down? There are too many characters. Jericho has a cast of six. And yeah, so that's <laughs> the budget constraints people are dealing with. I had uh, I've had people come say to me, can you write just a, you know, a two character play? That'd be great. Or even monologue would be ideal um, because it's budget uh, constraints. And then on the one, so I've always sort of known that. So most of my plays don't have that many characters. In fact, um, step nine, the radio play that you're probably already sick of me talking about. Um, I kind of knew when I wrote it that it probably wasn't producible because it had eight characters. So in a way, the radio was the play format was ideal for that because then you could do that. You could have lots of different characters, but that would be unproducible for many people these days. Even if you think about it, uh, the plays that are on Broadway now or off Broadway by big names, there's very few characters in them. And that's um, and it's purely a question of economics. And in a way, it's interesting as a writer, it's like being forced into a discipline right like uh, that's why some poets like writing sonnets because there's there are rules and you have to and like fitting into the rules it's, it's like a game and that's part of the fun of it and that's part of the challenge of it so um and it's good discipline because you should always you know uh, create a work with as few characters as possible because you know uh, brevity being the soul of wit etc but you uh but yeah but the idea of writing when i when i've written a couple of teleplays and i've realized oh i've got 30 people here and a lot of them just have one or two lines it's a very different animal uh and that's very uh much the same as it as it always was i i unfortunately I, I think that the that theater hasn't really learned its lesson yet we haven't found a way um to pare things down and make things more affordable and unfortunately i, I think that's unchanged hmm. yeah it it does uh does seem that way and, and honestly with the just skyrocketing popularity of podcasting and bringing, yeah. you know, radio plays back. I know you, you are going to podcasting yourself or have been in it. Yeah. Yeah. Are you playing around with, you know, splitting time between on stage and then producing radio plays now? What was it like well, I mean, like? we hope to produce more radio plays now to, to be honest right now, uh new normal rep. Um, we uh, are in the, in the 
it's grant season. So we're in the middle of like trying to get grants and that will sort of determine what we're able to do. We'd love to do more of those. Absolutely. We, uh, no question. Th those are fun. Um, you know, right now my, the project I'm working on currently, um, uh, one, one is a play I'm trying to get produced. And the other is, um, a thing I co-wrote with a friend of mine, um, that is basically a true crime podcast, but it's a parody of it. Uh, so, um, which we haven't seen, I haven't seen too many of those and yet true crime podcasts are massive. Um, and so we just finished writing uh, a series about, uh, you know, about a, you know, the, you know, the tagline is it's a true crime podcast about an untrue crime. And so it's, uh, you know, it's called the murderer killings and, uh, <laughs> it's, you know, and it's just aggressively silly, um, but done deadly serious, just like all, you know, has all the tropes of, true crime podcast so in a way it's it's a it's a fun way to to explore different avenues of of telling stories yeah i i cannot uh i can't picture a, a true satirical parody of a true crime podcast that yeah. that i you know know has however many subscribers or follow i, I can't think right. of one so you're cornering the market on that one. yeah so you know if anyone's listening to it uh now don't do it <laughs> so, <laughs> well with yeah. your your career your experiences uh just this colorful life that you've led within the you know performing arts yeah i'm really curious to see if you have a party story you could share with us so something that stands out within you know your time either on stage or off stage that you could easily tell friends at a party it could be horrific funny tragic <laughs> oh, I think you mean stories about parties, in which case, you know, if you know, the old cliche is like, you know, if they're that if it was that good a party, you wouldn't be able to remember to telling it. Um right. I, I will tell you something that's absolutely humiliating, uh, that I'll that I'll happily share for your uh, audience's uh you know, moderate enjoyment. Uh going back to that very first play I did, uh, I was in it, and it was like a third performance of it. And uh, I knew, you know, I, I knew the play and I knew that like my characters off stage for X amount of time. And I, so I was backstage talking to some other um, actors and we were having a good time. And I was telling some story that I obviously thought was very, very worth telling and very well done. And uh, all of a sudden this assistant stage manager says, you're late. You should be on by now. And it was, a, the, the, the setup was that <laughs> backstage, there's no room backstage to talk. So you went the dressing rooms which were up a staircase and over and it was like it was a really it wasn't an easy quick entrance and i uh, i've never lived this down and my friends who will still tell the story i mean the only time i've ever been late for an entrance in a play ever was in my play <laughs> which i like <laughs> and the third performance of it too so you would think that i would have still been sort of on my toes about it but talk about absolute hubris and arrogance i thought i know i know exactly how long i have apparently i didn't so uh and so i came on and i'll never forget the looks of the actors on the stage who had been madly and apparently um very feebly ad-libbing <laughs> for like it must have seemed like 15 minutes to them in reality it was probably a minute but a minute on stage is forever and um and I, you know, and I, was, I remember being in college and being in a production of What You Do About Nothing. And someone, it was just me on the stage, a little monologue, and I, and someone was supposed to come in and he didn't. And I, and I had lived in blah, blah, blah. And I remember thinking very, you know, like a very jaded, cynical, arrogant, 
20-year-old uh, thing. Well, I will never do that to another actor. And not only did I do that, I did it to several actors in my own play. So that's, uh, if you find humiliation entertaining, then that's very entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> and he's right. Those of you who are listening, uh, a minute on stage is an eternity. <gasps> Eternity. Eternity. <laughs> Eternity. Oh my God. If, and, and, you know, it's long enough for the audience to think, hmm, that's weird. And then to think, huh, something's definitely wrong. And so the audience sometimes enjoys it more, but it's, it takes years off the lives of the actors. Oh my, yes. But well, when you came back in, were they able to reroute to the initial conversation? They were, but I mean, man, okay. oh man, the, just the, uh, one of the greatest challenges I ever had was looking them in the eye afterwards, you know, <laughs> just saying, I'm so sorry. I know, I know. And they were actually very nice people. And they all, I mean, they were all annoyed as well as they should have been. But I mean, they all knew that there's nothing they could say that was going to make me feel worse than what I was already feeling. Although they gave it a try. <laughs> but no, it was, uh, it was, uh, ugh, God, what a terrible feeling. I still have nightmares about that. Oh my, yeah, I, I started to, to get that cold flop sweat as you were talking oh. about it, because that's my worst fear on on a set is showing it up. Is. <laughs> it is. It's a terrible thing. You know, that and going up on your lines, you know, is the two things. And um, I'll tell you another humiliating story, because I've, yes. I've got loads of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, is one of the times in that very first play, and um, the uh, one of the actors said to me, uh, she was very sweet and very nice about it. And she came up to me and said, you know, um, you're mouthing my lines. I said, what do you mean? He said, as I'm speaking, you're very, not perceptibly to anyone else, but like, if I'm looking at it, I can see it. Like you're, you're actually saying my lines, like, you know, silently, um, which I've never done with any other, anyone else's plays, but obviously there's some part of writer's brain that's going, okay, she says this now, and this is how this line goes. Just, you know, just amateur hour, you know, just absolutely mortifying uh, to hear that I did that. So, um, yeah, so those are just two of the uh, many, many embarrassing stories I have about myself in show business. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, I found that Bill Hader was doing that till season two of Barry. Every he really? He wrote, it does make you feel would, a lot better. Yeah, if it wasn't his coverage, he would be mouthing, the, and he wouldn't even realize it. They had to tell him to stop. <laughs> Yeah, exactly right. That's so that I found the one thing Bill Hader and I have in common. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. It's because no doubt he because he wrote it. Yeah, and that and that's what it is. You're just you're hearing it. You're playing it out as you're as you're hearing it. Just like when I'm when I'm reading, going over a script I've written, and I'm reading it. I'm no doubt mouthing it. You know, so you're as you're when you're writing it, you're always sort of acting it out in your head. And that's probably what he was doing. I wouldn't presume to speak for him, but if I had to guess, I'd say that's what it was. And that's totally what was doing for me. But you have actually made me feel a lot better about that. Thank oh, you. Perfect. <laughs> well, I mean, this is a great segue from that topic of conversation to get into uh, any advice that you could pass on to our listeners that you've personally held on to, whether they're starting their career now or they're in it and they're trying to stay in it. Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, you know, you've. I would just say very humbly, I mean, it just in terms of a, a you know, career, uh, not that I feel qualified to give advice, but I would say to anyone that you really got to, the cliche is true, you really have to love it. And if you can think, and, and you have to also understand that it has no obligation to love you back. And if you're willing to sort of be in that sort of relationship, which in a personal relationship would be a terrible red flag, um, you know, you're, you're, relationship with the arts is probably going to be 
um, in that sense, not a very even relationship. It's not always going to love you back. It may never love you back. And if you still feel compelled to be a part of it, then you're then you're doing the right thing. Um, and as a writer, all I could say is is read and see as many plays as you can, and then read as many books as you can uh, that have nothing to do with you. Just read and read and read, and um, you know, observe, observe, observe. You're always sort of you know the whole everything is everything is source material. Um, and so, and I would also, uh, apparently I've got several things to advise here. Uh, um, I, as a writer in particular, and I guess it would apply to acting too, that everything is source material. And the more you are willing to sort of unburden yourself of your secrets and the things that are, that you find most embarrassing or shameful, and the more specific you can get with that, the more universal it becomes. And um, because which is a paradox. The more specific you are about a, a situation and a feeling, especially something that humiliates you uh, or, or or frightens you or makes you unhappy, you know, very uh, makes you not feel very proud about how you're feeling. That's usually where the good stuff is. Um, no. Not in life. In life, it's a disaster. But on stage, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. very <laughs> yeah. Don't don't do that in life. Uh, you will feel ten times right. worse. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I those are all incredibly pertinent. I, I really appreciate it. And and this is, you know, the best part of the episode, the shout outs and promotions, which you alluded to earlier on in the episode as well. But what can I specifically give a shout out to for you in the episode notes? Well, thank you. I, I, I really hope people get to uh, get a chance to listen to our new normal reps um, uh, audio play, which is called Step Nine is the number nine. And um, if you just go to any of your favorite podcasteries, uh, and uh, click in uh, and type in a uh, new normal rep in step nine. It will take you to all the episodes and uh, we're very proud of it. Um, and we really hope you, you check it out. Um, we also have a YouTube channel. We're very proud of and right now Jericho, which is a full length, our first full length production uh, is available for free. Uh, just check it out. We hope you enjoy it. And there's also lots of, lots of other small uh, things. We'll talk back to different plays and uh, some 10 minute plays and a couple of sketches. So there's lots of material there that we're very proud of. And we, we hope you'll check out. Oh, absolutely. I know I'm definitely going to, you know, check out more of it. And when I'm back in New York city, you know, as long as you have a, a production going on, I'll, even if you don't, you know, I'll hit you up and grab yeah. a cup of coffee or something. Absolutely. I love uh, it. This is this has been delightful, man. I have one more thing we have to do before we we end the recording, but I do want to yeah. say thank you for your time and you know just sharing your story. This is the best part about doing this podcast is meeting new people. So, uh, thank yeah, it, yeah, it's, it was it's, a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, absolutely. I'm just glad uh, the coffee hasn't betrayed me yet, uh, as far as like <laughs> flubbing words or stammering. So that's always a win. Um, no, you've nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> as we wrap up, I do need to ask you: Have you ever seen Wayne's World? Of course. Of okay. Course. Okay. Perfect. So last step in every single episode of this podcast is what I like to call the awkward goodbye. Uh, similar to, you know, Wayne walking off the set when corporate takes over and Garth is just left there to his yeah. own devices, freaking out. So uh, right. essentially what I'll do is I'll give you a silent three, two, one countdown. And when I point to you, give me your best verbal and visual awkward goodbye. Does that sound good? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And you thought you were done acting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here okay, we go, Jack. Let me try. Okay. <laughs> In. Um. So yeah. Um. Yeah. See ya. <laughs> <laughs>